0: Hey now, welcome back to Where Wine Takes You, where we celebrate this amazing juice in our glass and the people and stories behind it. The fact that some of the most special people and most fascinating stories happen to be coming out of Paso Robles Wine Country, that is pretty rad too. I'm glad you're here. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Well, lots going on in Paso Wine Country. We just finished broadcasting live from the California Mid-State Fair. That was a ton of fun. I got to say, thank you to all the folks that found me broadcasting live in Mission Square and came by and said hello. I mean, it's not totally uncommon for maybe listeners of either maybe the morning show or the cork dorks to come by and say hello when I'm broadcasting live at the fair. But I had really, it was cool. We had a good amount of people come by and say hello that specifically listened to this podcast. It was so cool to meet you. And if you came by, I have to say thank you for taking time to do that. Uh, during the duration of the fair, I literally became like a Templeton and Paso Robles resident getting in all the different breakfast places like Joe's place or Amy and Jamie's place, the cafe, just, oh, it was so cool. We were staying at Ventu Vineyards, which is in Templeton on Las Tablas Road. Beautiful grounds, some fantastic hospitality, great wine, just some wonderful people. And lots of folks asking where I was based on the pics that I was posting. You can actually visit VentuVineyards.com, and they spell that uh, V-E-N-T-E-U-X, VentuVineyards.com. Click on lodging and see, wow. What a great place to visit. They do live music on this beautiful lawn. They got this gorgeous stage set up, rolling hills, vineyards, 360 degrees around you. Definitely worth coming by for a taste or to check out the grounds. Let them know you heard it here from Adam and uh, this podcast. I'm sure they'll treat you kindly. Now, if you're new to the podcast and have not heard a lot of our conversations, please take some time while you're doing some chores, maybe washing some dishes. Check out some of the previous conversations. I mean, in the first year, of becoming really like the fastest-growing wine podcast in the country. We have some convos with some great, I mean, some big hitters in some some pretty popular wineries. Jordan from Epic, Justin from Saxum, shoot, Justin from Justin, Matt from Lene Colotto, uh Danny from Dow, the Beckett Brothers from Peachy, uh, Neil from Loma Drone, Scott from Torrin, Sherman from Thatcher, uh, Chris of Via Creek, Jason from Toblas Creek. Mark of Ledge, like, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Just check out the past episodes, pick a winemaker or a winery you like, and just start there. And before we get into today's episode, please, if you are not new and have been hanging a while, take some time and share the podcast with a friend. And if you can rate five stars, review and subscribe to the podcast, it means so much. Listen to this five-star review from Robilium. if I'm saying that right. And keep in mind, you can ask questions here as well, but I love Love, love, love the comments. Listen to this. This is my new podcast, Binge. An entertaining, educating by the OGs, even as a new winery owner. Oh, wow. I find the content both educational and entertaining. For example, from Cass, I learned the code and construction tips on eight-bedroom hospitality, how they adopt their reservations, etc. From Justin at Saxum, great insight on farming and grower relations. Neil's salty stories. Uh, great storytelling. Makes me want to crack open a bottle and join in. Well, Robillium, you have. Thank you for joining the fam. I appreciate you taking the time to make that Uh, to make that comment. It means a lot. So keep them coming. All right. Coming up after our conversation, got another Travel Paso Spotlight. This is cool. I'm excited to share with you. So stick around for that, especially if you're into some ideas of mine for maybe where to stay for your next trip, some cool accommodations. I got you. All right. Ready for today's convo? I am certainly ready for it. I'm excited to talk to two winemakers who are well-schooled well-served, and well-traveled. Chatting today with Philip Thunder, winemaker for Law Estate Wines, and Aaron Jackson of Aaron Wines. Now, both these gentlemen, very different, but have some striking similarities. Both smart, very educated, master's degrees from within their craft. Also, both well-traveled. They've traveled the world, work harvest in other places, actually other hemispheres, for crying out loud. Also, both love to surf, and uh, to see how that shapes the men they are and the winemakers they are, I couldn't help but find it eye-opening and fascinating. So hopefully I don't kook this interview up, because although I grew up only 15 minutes from Malibu in Agoura Hills, I haven't surfed since I was a teenager. The water is a lot warmer at Zuma than it is here on the Central Coast. Oh yeah, and sharks. Right, and sharks. So Aaron Jackson, Aaron Wines, he is part of that Undeniable crew and the vibe in Tin City, He's really uh, in my favorite spot in Tin City, too, right there by Wineshine, Desperado. You got Levo around the corner, Turtle Rock right behind you, among more. Tin City, shoot, we could do a whole show just on these folks. So much fun. Now Aaron has been in the game for about 20 years, and it was his wine that first changed my view on Petit Syrah. He makes a lot of different wines, including many from outside Paso. So he has some great expressions of Pinot Noir, among others, from all over. So I wholeheartedly encourage you to check him out. Check out Aaron Wines. Now, in keeping with this recent trend, I guess, of interviewing people for the first time, I have never even met Philip Funder of Law Estate Wines. I mean, he has worked in New Zealand, France, Napa. So to have him in Paso, it's pretty awesome. I love meeting him. And if you've uh, never been to Law, it is one of those wineries that you you can count on one hand. The architecture this The whole thing is just going to blow your mind. Like Epic, I think of Saxum. Even the Crush Pad blows your mind at law. I'm due to revisit it for sure, but I did a Cork Dorks there years ago with then winemaker Scott Holly, who we have had on this podcast. Great show. And he was showing me around. And as their first winemaker, Scott Holly was the first winemaker at law. He had the incredible opportunity not only to... Help put law on the map, but their wine, their vineyards, their people, from Oliver to everyone there, the family, all world-class. But Scott had his hand in literally making molds of tanks that he wanted, especially for this project, shaping the crush pad so that at the time of year when they're doing harvest, the pavilion is set to a way where the crush pad never sees direct sunlight as to maintain the integrity of the grapes. I mean, it is a trip to see all the lengths they were able to go to assure that they would only make world-class wine from world-class vineyards. And uh, it's a one-of-a-kind place. So since I am staying at Ventu Vineyards, I have the guys meet me here. We're in the basement of the vineyard house, and they have this poker room kind of thing. It's cool. It's really super coolly lit. I dig it. So we're going to set up in here. Chris Toronto of the Past Robles Wine Country Alliance is also with us. He unfortunately is not mic'd up. But he is an avid surfer too, and I think the only reason he came was to make sure that these two guys didn't divulge any secret Central Coast spots. So we come into the conversation with all this traveling these guys have done, and really just meeting Philip. Philip shares where wine has taken him and how it brought him to
1: Paso. Give me that we'll get by fast till the job is shut, out in the trees, it will simplify.
2: So, that's actually a really interesting story. So, wine, my career in wine really started in New Zealand. I started um, in 2007. I moved to New Zealand to pursue my master's in oenology and viticulture and fell in love with a country that's pretty easy to fall in love with New Zealand. So, I ended up staying for the better part of eight years. And during that time, I would spend half the year on the Southern Hemisphere, half the year in the Northern Hemisphere. So, I would do you know the first vintage in, in New Zealand. And then I worked in France for three years at Chateau Angelus. And then I worked in Napa for a couple of years. And once at Heiden de Villaine who actually I just saw the general manager of HTV. He was up at law. I just did a, a tasting with him. Oh, now that people know you're there, they got to come visit. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then my last harvest in Napa was actually in 2015. I worked at Screaming Eagle. And that's how I kind of came to law in Topaso. So after harvest, Nick listen, the Winemaker at Eagle. We kind of all did this big group. We went down to um, Honada in the Santa Rita Hills and um, for a little kind of vacation just... Drink some good wine, eat some good food after harvest, and on the way down, we stopped in Paso. So we ended up getting coffee at Spearhead. That's a good start. Great, and then we ended up going to um, Booker and Saxon for tastings. And to be perfectly honest, I was floored at the quality of the wines. Up until that point, most of my experience and exposure to wine was New Zealand, France, and Napa. I had no idea. California or America did Rhone varieties that well, so I was really amazed at the wines. I was really impressed with the with the quality, and I really liked the town. I thought it was a really cool little town. I started digging around, figured out that there's probably some pretty good surf as well. That's (laughs) relatively uncrowded because of the temperature of the water and the size of the fish. Um, So I put out my feelers, and the law estate was kind of at the top of the list. I talked to Eric Jensen at Booker. Asked if he knew anybody that was looking, so on and so forth, and fired off my resume. And literally within half an hour, Oliver, her general manager, called me back, which I certainly wasn't expecting. At that point, I was in a hot tub with my dad, two or three glasses into a single malt. (laughs) So I wasn't exactly ready for a job interview, but um, I guess it worked out. You know, the rest was history. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a crazy story how you you fell into
0: it. But still, there was a lot of like deliberateness and thoughtfulness of you, you know.
2: Yeah. No, I always had a soft spot for Syrah and, and Grenache. Um, you know, I made a little bit of Syrah in New Zealand, but I really love Rhone wines um, and Rhone varieties and blends. So, When did you meet Aaron Jackson along this journey? We met probably within the first couple of years of yeah. me being here, um, just because, well, Scott was still at Intent City at that point. Yep. So our paths might have crossed there, but I honestly don't really remember. I, I know we met at
3: the winery. I remember coming up with a couple of people and yeah. meeting you up at Law. And then we just started running into each other at the beach in Caicos yeah. all the time. Yeah, totally. Like pretty frequently, you know, your dawn sessions before you go to work, you know, it's like yeah. there's not many people at the beach at 6 or
0: 6.30 in the morning. Right. Yeah. Especially, yeah, you know, sweet. a you know, fellow winemaker. Yeah. yeah. You kind of see each other like, oh, you are you and I are on the same program today, huh? Yeah. So remind folks who uh, maybe, you know, aren't too familiar with Aaron Wines. I know um, I've gotten a chance to interview you a bunch, but we were just joking about it before we jumped on the air. You're almost 20 years deep into this.
3: We are 20 years this year. So the first vintage was actually 2002 of the that was the very first vintage of the Aaron Petit Syrah, so believe it or not, uh, 20 years this year, which is kind of mind-blowing, you know, to think, some people tell you as you get older, like, oh, time just flies, you know, like, the older you get, and I'm kind of like, was talking to my team yesterday, and I was like, holy crap, can you believe it? Like, mm-hmm. 20 years? Like, jeez. That's a long time. And so, you know, started to do library tastings and stuff like that, and digging out bottles.
0: How do they taste? Because I was joking about this an episode ago. I listened to Air Check's, of me being on the radio 20 years ago and I cringe. I want to I can't turn it off fast enough. I don't like it, you know. Are your first wines cringy or are they like, "Oh man, that's good." We tasted um Anthony Yunts 08 Roussan from James Berry, the first white he made. It was like it was gorgeous. Yeah. I'm like, "How do you how do you do that right off the bat?" Yeah.
3: I mean, I I think that, you know, in the early part of my career, it was the the success of the wines that we had was Probably a a combination of tenacity and luck, you know, really. And then over time, of course, uh, the wines have gotten more and more refined. I I frankly have a lot more confidence in them now than then. But it's funny. We still go back and taste those wines. And that's I'm really never one to ever shower myself in any kind of praise whatsoever. I'm pretty unbelievably self-critical all the time which is a double-edged sword, but it's, it's it, it can be kind of a good trade as a winemaker because um, you, you need to force yourself to be objective about your wines and yeah, objective. because yeah. a lot of winemakers that just don't really have that capacity. It's like, I made it, so therefore it's great, and I I, I don't really feel that way. But it's been pretty incredible to see how good the wines still taste. I, I do a blind wine on every Friday with my team, and uh, three weeks ago we did. I pulled a 2006 Petit Syrah just like, I never pour my own wines. I always, it's always something obscure. It's Get like, someone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be like a Xenomabro from like Greece or something weird, you know? Yeah. And, uh, just to kind of help build their palates. And so I pulled a 2006 Petit Syrah and, and, poured it for them and, and cut my team members. Go, oh, like, what is it? And, they, and, and one of the team members called it. She's like, Oh, I, I think this is a, appetites and i was like oh cool and i was like well you know we always go like we try to be objective go through the go through the profile you know body acid you know, uh, you know all the kind of pretty objective things, yeah it's like yeah, objectives and and it was like what vintage do you think it is and everyone's like oh for sure like 2017 maybe 2018 oh wow i was like oh cool, we're chasing and I pulled it pulled the bag out and i was like it's 2006 and they just their jaws hit the ground they were
0: like that's a 2006 well you I literally, literally changed old. my opinion. You changed me on Petit Syrah. Yeah. It was your Petit Syrah that I had. It was just like, wow, silky round tannins. It's it's luxurious. It's sexy. Before, it's always like swallowing a square, you know, or like swallowing dice I always liken it to. But, and, and I was talking to Amy Butler about this, you know, uh, on the last episode, and, I, and I'm really curious so anytime somebody makes a single bottle Petit Syrah, I kind of ask them, you know, I, I like a Cameron from Ultima Thule oh, yeah, or he's got a good one. Uh, Amy yeah. Butler's this uh, fancy boot. So it's a one-off. She She's not going to do it again, but it's really, really good. And I mean, is this is this in the the vineyard or is this in the cellar? A little combo of both. How you can get that round sexiness about it? I mean, I think you can't argue that any 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 wine, uh,
3: frankly, good or bad, is going to be a combination of both. We like to say that it's all the vineyard, it's all the vineyard, it's all the vineyard. And that's like, it's it's kind of sexy to say that. It's, it's got to start there for sure. And but you can I, mess
2: I, it up in the cellar real easily. Real easily. And <laughs> yeah. I, I think there,
3: there is a lot of wines out there that you can say like, they're made entirely of vineyard and we're just the shepherd of that. And I, I think there is a lot of truth to that as well. But at the same at the same time, like there is no wine that just makes itself and the winemaker does nothing. Right. That's like, that's a crock. I mean, we have to do something now. You can be a really low intervention winemaker and not really do a whole lot. It's
0: always popular to be like, I stay out of the way. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I I, I don't, you know, I think, and I'm not dogmatic at all. Sure. Winemaker. I'm just not that kind of person that says like, this is what we do and we only do this because every vintage is different. And and that's one of the beautiful things about winemaking. One of the things that makes it exciting is that mother nature is going to dish you out something totally different every year. And as a winemaker, we have to be, it's our job to adapt to that. Yeah. And if you're the winemaker that's dogmatic about something and says, oh, it's a really, really such-and-such such vintage, and and I have to just step away and, and not interfere,
0: you can make a lot of really crappy wines that way. When did you... W- when you go back into your toolbox, is it often the stuff you learned, like, education-wise, or is it, like, experience-wise? I mean, both of you gentlemen, which we're going to get into, have done harvests and, you know, literally other hemispheres.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in analogy and so I certainly have the academic background, but, like, I always kind of say, like, if my... I, my, my master's was at the University of Adelaide in South Australia. And so I, if my professors today saw the way that I make wine, they would be aghast at some of <laughs> the things because I throw a lot of the academic background out the window. Yeah. But do I lean on that academic background? Absolutely. And it's it's like anything in life. It's like you, 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 have the, you want to have the tools in the toolbox, but you only want to use it when
2: you have to.
0: Philip, how much of this is craft? How much of this is art to you? You also got a master's
2: kind of like on what? What? Aaron was just chiming in on. Similar hemisphere. I just did it in New Zealand. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's a lot of truth to what Aaron is saying. And I I strongly kind of agree with that whole philosophy. I like to be a hands-off winemaker and and let the vintage speak for itself. But you do have to guide it in the right direction, right? If you just don't intervene at all, you know, you're going to make some pretty average wines. Um, As far as academics, I think they're important. It's an important background. You know, my master's was a research master's. I studied non-saccharomyces serve as a yeast from New Zealand that, you know, partake in Pinot fermentations mm. and the characteristics that they may impart on the wine, whether it be mouthfeel or flavor, aroma characteristics, things like that. So it's certainly important and it's certainly, you know, good knowledge to have, but the experience that you get from working in different places and seeing how other people do it and other countries do it, I think that's invaluable mm. because with at every place that you go to, you you certainly learn something, whether it's this is something that I could apply in the future, or this is something I'm never going to do. And yeah. you know what Aaron said, I think is really interesting too. The you know the whole comment of if some of my professors saw what I do now, they'd probably cringe, and I think that's true because they they teach you in a certain way. You know, I don't use any yeast, I don't use any commercial um, winemaking products. Really, everything is you know whatever comes in from the vineyards. I you know, which is partly probably because of my start in the wine industry with um, Kim Yu River, and he's been doing wild ferment since the 80s. And, you know, having studied that as with my master's degree, I I have a large degree in confidence that, you know, just leave it alone, it'll go eventually, it's, it's just going to go. So um, there's a little bit of risk involved with that. But I think the You know, the benefits outweigh the risks. Interesting dynamic
0: between the two of you. Aaron is at the helm of his own brand. And we've talked to people like, you know, I was talking to Matt Trevison a couple episodes back, and he's like, I kind of learned I had to make the wine. That I like because if I don't sell it, I'm drinking it. You know, yeah. you are hired, you have owners who obviously have an idea, and obviously they, they hired you, they like you, they love your talent and your style. But talk about the difference in that dynamic of, you know, having to kind of make this with an idea of
2: the folks upstairs making sure that it fulfills their idea too. Yeah. Well, I think for me, that was really easy and I, it kind of fell right into place because. Um, my winemaking philosophy and style is really similar to Scott's, um, who is the, you know, founding winemaker at law. Yeah. Scott Holly. Um, sure. and so, you know, when we had those interviews, I think there's certain things that I said when I talked about, you know, how I really like wild ferments, he's a big fan of that. He doesn't use any yeast or anything like that. So, you know, I, I kind of saw his eyes kind of light up over Skype cause I was in New Zealand at the time and he was like, you know, this is going to work. I think we've got really similar philosophies and really similar styles. And then, um, you know I'm really lucky that at law Don and Susie the owners um they really give me you know complete creative freedom they they love the wines that we're producing they like the wines that we make and you know they um they let me have at it and just and and do what i do and um and it's really awesome to have owners that you know know that hey we've put the right people in place um you know Phil's extremely passionate about what he does he loves doing this we're certainly not going to get in the way. and No, yeah, right. And so it's it's really cool. And, um, you know, to be able to make so many different wines that we make a lot to is, is pretty special. So Talk about the one you just poured us. So the first wine that we have here is um, the 18 Audacious. You guys are actually lucky. Um, this wine's going to be released in a couple of days. So it's a bit of an odd premiere. Nice. Um, it's not even released yet. And Audacious, um, I actually brought that wine because... Um, Back in 2016, my first harvest at law, that was a wine that I had um, a little bit of an impact in. Um, As far as, you know, winemaking, it was one of the first kind of contributions as a winemaker that I made to Law. Um, So it's a blend of Grenache, Cabernet, Carignan, and a touch of Syrah, uh, Grenache dominant, and then Carignan and Cab, roughly 25%, and the rest is Syrah. So it's kind of a Priorat-esque type blend, right? yeah. It's got a lot of minerality, a lot of structure, lots of complexity. And um, back in 2016, um, I came up with the idea, and we, you know, Scott and I blended it out and tried it. You know, I thought, the Carignan on the property is really special. I love Carignan. I think it's a variety that's really well suited. We've to been our talking more and more about Carignan. It's so awesome. It's such a hearty grape. Like you know, when, as far as all the varieties I have in the vineyard, you know, we get three or four days of triple digits. I worry about Syrah. I worry about Tempranillo. I worry about the Cabernet rolling up. Carignan, I don't even think about. Like yeah. that thing will just hang through and. It'll be fine. It'll it's grow perfect. on you too, huh? Oh, it's it's such a cool variety. Oh, yeah, it always comes on. It. Yeah. So it's reliable. Yeah, yeah right. It it is, yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, you're growing on a site like Law where it's just the terroir is just super gnarly. It
2: is, yeah. It's like you can actually get a decent acceptable crop, crop. yeah and yeah right there Not i mean, lose money yeah <laughs> and i mean even there we're we're barely getting naturally like right around three tons an acre yeah. off of the carignan but that's perfect that's perfect yeah. so when you think uh, of
0: pre-rot i mean you look at the soil there and i have actually a piece of a piece of it because yeah. it comes in pieces yeah. uh on my on my shelf big at home rocks big black t- i yeah. mean it's solid rock
2: yes that these wines are growing and it's fascinating it is yeah so we certainly don't have similar soils but we have similar aspects and yeah. maybe temperatures um, it gets pretty hot as well of anywhere
3: in the world I've been I would say the Pierrot is probably the closest place you can get to Paso Robles Yeah. all those year. big rolling hills yeah. and aspects very and, extreme yeah. aspects yeah. very very steep very yeah. intense very frankly warm raw. exposed yeah. raw vines just freaking dying what yeah. do you like about this wine Aaron I mean for me I think that there's, there's actually you know Law is a, such an intense site I mean the wines can be are generally really intense. They really reflect the area. And this wine actually has a tremendous amount of balance. It's got a lo- loads of freshness. Mm-hmm. I, I like the way that he's really, in a way, like, tamed the intensity. And Kirinyak can be a really pretty intense for varietal yeah. you know it's pretty it's pretty wild it can be pretty feral pretty raw and it's really really well managed here um i think it's really interesting i really get the concrete uh, on the nose i really get that concrete character which for me when i'm drinking a wine that's asian concrete it's nice to actually pick up the elements of that uh on the nose you kind of get this this kind of you know, in a positive way, that's kind of like wet concrete character on the nose.
0: The different places that you've made wine, and I'm going to ask you both this, how has that shaped the winemaker that you are here in Paso? You've made wines all over
2: the place. Yeah. um, It certainly has a big influence and a big impact, right? So, you know, I I spent three years in, in France at Chateau Angelus and, you know, many years in New Zealand working on the northern... Uh, North Island and the South Island, and then a couple of years in Napa. And I think at every place you kind of pick up things of like, wow, this is a really cool idea. Maybe I can apply that at some time. And you know that happened so many times throughout my career, and, and since I've been at law, where you think about things that you've seen a, a, at other places, and you're like, I think that would work here. You know, like let's try it out. Um, you know, Delistage, for example, we utilize those a lot in in Santa Mion and. A lot of places that you would do that before I got there, it was basically a rack and return. But, you know, Monsieur Dubois at Chateau Angelus was like, if if that skin and juice aren't separate for at least four hours, it's not a Delostage. You're basically just doing a full volume pump over. So, you know, that's something that I picked up there. And it really changes the dyna- the dynamics of the type of extraction that you get and the kind of tannins that you build. I mean, Delostage is a very aggressive extracting method. But... In that way, if you keep the skins and the the juice separate for long enough, it really builds lots of tannin, but very soft tannin. So, it's a really interesting kind of thing. So, that's something that I've... Any things you've ever applied to your winemaking in Paso that didn't quite translate
0: because it's here and maybe what you were doing in France or this or that maybe just doesn't quite
2: equal up here? Yeah, well, I mean, 2012 and... In, in New Zealand is a perfect example. You're certainly not adding sugar to anything around here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you've got plenty of sugar. So, you know, it, the ripeness and the level of ripeness that we can attain here is something that I had certainly never seen before. You know, working in New Zealand mainly and then in, in France. And, you know, in, in Napa, yeah, you can certainly get that kind of ripeness. But my first year in Napa was at, in Carneros. It was, you know, Haydn de valaine So that's a very different terroir there. And then at Eagle, you know, Nick actually picks probably a little bit earlier than a lot of people in the area. And it's hard because not a lot of people have the chance to actually taste the wine, but it's a very feminine and beautiful expression of Cabernet from Napa, which is what I really love about it. Uh, So um, that was a little different as well. But yeah, there's certainly things that just don't apply as far as, you know, for example, you know, chapelization or something like that in a year where you don't quite get the sugar ripeness that's not something we ever have to worry about.
0: Aaron, how have your like travels kind of shaped how you uh, make wine in Paso as we get into your first one too?
3: Um, I guess the biggest thing is just really you get a perspective by going to different places that the same thing doesn't work in every place. That's probably yep. the greatest learning experience because at the end of the day, like true wisdom comes from experience. and And to develop wisdom as a winemaker, you have to be humble enough to recognize that it's it's really not all about what you think. It's about you learning an area and, and developing what works. For example, you know when you're at a place like Law, when you're that high up in Adelaide and you have that much limestone and your pHs are that low in the wines, you can't pick wines. That, you can't be dogmatic. You can't pick wines at 23 bricks. It doesn't work. No, you know, it's impossible.
2: A and so, two point nine pH. you would be yeah. making you know yeah. something that has a pH or the acid of Coca-Cola, basically. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: And so you're. It's like you're you are basically looking at yourself and saying like, well, I don't pick anything over 26 bricks. And you say, well, at the end of the day, it's 29 and it's still three, three. So we got to let it hang, you know? And that's just, that's learning your terroir. That's understanding that, that, um, you know, the, the trying to extract the best, the best thing you can from the terroir that you're given. That's what you learn when you travel around the world. And so it goes, it goes the other way as well. If you, if you're stuck in a passive mindset, of we pick everything at really, really ripe, then you go to someplace else and you, you pick the wines really, really ripe and the wines suck you're yeah. like, oh, God, this just totally doesn't carry over from place to place. And so that's the perspective you get from traveling. I think that if you spent your entire career making wine from one place, it certainly can develop a closed-minded attitude to your winemaking. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, like you can still become a great, great winemaker having only made wine in one place your entire career. I don't think that defines whether or not a winemaker is great or not, but it depends on what kind of winemaker you are. If you're something that really craves to be a well-rounded winemaker – um. Yeah, I think that traveling and, and seeing different experiences like anything, just tr- just not even you're a winemaker, just a person traveling mm-hmm. the world, you just have different perspectives and you see things through a different lens and then that allows you to be adaptable, it allows you to be more dynamic, it, it develops wisdom. And so for me, like I've spent, yeah, the majority of my career, I grew up here on the Central Coast, I've spent almost my entire career on the Central Coast except for my time that I spent in the Southern Hemisphere studying and it's a very different place down there and they mm-hmm. made very different wines and I like those wines Frankly, just as much as I like the wines up here, um, but they're definitely not made the same. And I think I love actually the the humbleness that comes. Uh, or the big slice of humble pie that winemakers have to eat when they go to a new place and they like to bring their their dogmatic approaches from where they came from and they think well they can, it's easy to walk in the door and say like "All oh, you winemakers are a bunch of idiots like, let me show you how to make wine because where I come from blah 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 they do it it's just a huge failure and you're like oh really yeah yeah wow, right? pretty good didn't it yeah um, so you know that's that's the perspective that the traveling and, and going around the world gives you I mean I even had this conversation with winemakers just in our local area so like Santa Barbara County, for example, you know, I do make a little bit of Pinot Noir from over on the coast. And this is like Pismo Beach in Cambria. And just from there, going to say that and the Cito Vineyard in Santa Barbara County, very, very different. They go, oh, we pick, we have to pick everything at, at 23 bricks because the, the flavors and the pHs and everything like that are perfect at this level. And they kind of go, well, you know, you're crazy because you picked your Pinot Noir at 24 and a half And I picked mine at 22 too. And, my, and I'm like, well, what was your pH and what were your flavors like? And I say, oh, well, the pH was 3.6. I'm like, well, my pH was 3.1. So, like, I couldn't pick it at 22.7. It yeah. would taste like battery acid to be off Right, right. You know, and the flavors are green. The tannins weren't ripe. And so, it's just it's just learning the vineyards and learning the place and learning how to adapt. And then and then shaping your individual winemaking style around, ultimately, what the terroir tells you is right. And then you have, you have some wiggle room within there, right? Like, style, you're kind of you're overlaying your style upon like what you're given. Right. And um, I don't like to, you don't want to force it too much. You can't. Phil and I probably follow the same mantra of like, don't force it. You know, kind of work with it. It's just like surfing. Like this is going to be sound really cheesy, but it's like my old boss, Chris. You know, so you just kind of got to ride the wave. You know, once you like once you're up on the wave, that's a really cheesy way to describe it because surfing and going in general is pretty damn cheesy. But it's like at the same time, like you you got to ride the wave you're given. And so, like if you force something on a wave, like
2: it's not right. Yeah, you you can't go into it thinking like, all right, well I'm going to do a top turn here. I'm going to do a roundhouse, and then I'm going to go for a lip bash. Like, Mm -hmm. well, you just got to go with whatever the wave gives you, right? Right. You have to be adaptable, and that really. You know, that's something that I think we've talked about too before where it's, you know, surfing is similar to winemaking in that regards because you have to be adaptable. You have to just be able to work with whatever nature gives you, whether, you know, it's a big steep section or it's, you know, a really hot vintage or it's rain when you don't need it or whatever that case may be. So there's a lot to learn from one to the other. I think it it f- forces you to learn how to live in the present. There's, there's no planning in winemaking. There's no, this is what I'm going to do this year. These are what the the wines are going to turn out like. That just doesn't exist. Every year is a blank canvas, just like every wave is a blank canvas, kind of. The lines that you draw are your personal choices and your personal style. You know, a, a wine is a culmination of thousands of seemingly inconsequential decisions, whether or not those are minimal intervention or not, you know. By not intervening, by not doing something, that's a decision you've made. Exactly. And if you make that decision 50 times throughout the course of a wine, it shapes what that wine will end up being. So. And even in your
0: own style, there's still this aspect of requiring to be malleable to what's happening around you. Yeah. yeah totally. That's really interesting.
3: I love like like people feel like winemaking is just like crazy wild, dark art. They just can't even fathom how you can develop the confidence or understand how to make these certain decisions. And and it's always like to bring it down to layman's terms. It's always really interesting to talk to people and give them the analogy of like, well, like, okay, like you're barbecuing a steak or whatever. You're cooking something, your dish and like, you're sitting there and you're watching and you salt it and you season it and you do this and you're watching, you're watching the flame and you're, you're poking it and deciding when to pull it off. And all those things are just like, why? Well, I make mean, those are like little decisions, and you, yeah. you know, but, but then they just slap a steak on your, and you cut up and you eat it. And people don't think about like, well, if I was to sit there and grill them, be like, well, why'd you pull it off now?
1: right, right. <laughs> I, I, like
3: it was done like but how do you did you, did you did you like test it how did you know that it do you was have done a how, did you, how, yeah, right. <laughs> how did you know like did, did you know like that it didn't need like 30 more seconds or like four more minutes and they're like i don't know i just like i that's what i felt was the right decision so i did it it's the same thing in winemaking. that's the so interesting and the more times you do it the more confident you get and like you can you, know, you can go to culinary school and have a background to know like how to make those decisions it's the same way phil and i have this background in academics but at the end of the day like you are ultimately following your gut Yep. You know, and is it is not a learned by experience. Like, Oh shit, we burned that one. Whoops! Yeah. try it again next time I do it. I'll and it's tough because you get one crack literally a year. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you're cooking this really elaborate meal for like 24 months. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah.
3: It,
0: you know? and
3: that's a lot of things can go wrong is. along the way. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, like I make wines that I like, and the hope and the goal is that other people like those, too.
0: Well, also, yeah. when your customers kind of move in, and yes, they get closer, they get closer to the brand, they shape a style, and they expect something from you. Yeah. They expect, like, oh, Aaron style is this. Law style is
3: that. You mm-hmm. only need, like, whatever, 100, 1,000 true fans. And the goal is, right. like, I mean, there's a million different wines out there that people love. And ultimately, <coughs> like, I, I want to make wines that... That, that I like, that I feel confident in. And, and frankly, as a winemaker, is that paramount to what I'm doing? Yeah, it is. But I'm also not, I don't want to just, ma- I don't want to get in the situation where I'm making wines that ultimately like fulfill my own desires, but nobody else likes. Cause that's just suicide. Yeah. yeah. You know? So like, yeah, they go, the beautiful thing is when you go, wow, I love this mention that you pour it for people and they go, "Holy crap, this is the best wine you ever made." I'm like, oh, I'm really glad that you feel that way too. That, yeah, like makes me feel really good, and I feel like I'm not like out of my mind because it's really easy to go about it with an, an ego and be like, every every winemaker pours a wine for someone and literally says, "Here's my wine. It's the greatest wine you've ever tasted." Everyone's done that a million times, you know. And the goal is to actually, you know, pour it in, and in your mind you're going like, I mean, I think this wine's really good. so mm-hmm. I yeah. really hope you like it. You know, yeah. that's like you got to have a little bit of a degree, degree of modesty, and, and as a winemaker as a profession, like. It's it's easier for us to have confidence and say like look I ultimately like know this wine is good I know that and like you got in the, in the cons, to to meet the consumer and you say at the end of the day like I know this wine is good but everyone seeks a little bit of validation and it's good to be like yes everyone likes this they're buying it they love it they, it's the wine that they seek out it's the wine they put in their cellars the wine they want to share with their friends and so it's it that's ultimately our goal like we have to make things that people do like or else we won't be in business
2: yeah, yeah. Phil what do you think yeah totally I mean I, I agree but you know at, at the end of the day. I think the differences in vintages really dictate a lot of those differences. You know, every year is going to bring something else. 2017, for example, was a very feminine and pretty expression from all over Paso. I think, you know, it was the year we finally broke the drought. The vineyards had a lot of horsepower. and, And there was a slightly different kind of balance and expression to the wines. 2018 was a much smaller crop. There was more concentration. It was a little bit more brooding, a little bit more powerful. And, you know, if you get an incredible score for a wine... You know, it, my goal really is to express a certain style of wine, a certain style of what we can produce from our property. Since it's all estate grown, it's all organically farmed. I've got a lot of control in that sense because I don't have to, you know, work with a lot of different growers. The the one person I work with is Levi, our vineyard manager, and him and I cruise through the vineyards and make all the decisions um, of what we're going to do. And you know, what I'm really trying to express is, for example, in Audacious, you know, I'm I'm trying to express. That style of wine, that, you know, Grenache with Carignan and Cabernet and a touch of Syrah, it's going to be similar every year, but the differences that you see are just vintage variables, right? Like how the vintage was different. So, you know, whether it's Aspire that gets the scores one year because it's just a great Syrah year, or it's this wine that gets the best scores the the following year. I try not to think about that that much. I really just try to make the best possible wine that I can in a certain style every single year. You know, w- whether that's 2017, 18, 16, 19, whatever it may be. 19, by the way, is pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. 19 is, I, I don't know if we'll ever see a 19 yeah. again. I mean, 19, in my opinion, was just... You think 19 going to be like another 07 or something? I don't know, so. I think so. I think really? I think 07 was overhyped, personally. Really? Kind of, I mean, know. I don't know too many 07s. I've had 07 James Berry, actually. I've I've had one of the Saxon wines from then. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, actually, it was 100 points. Yeah, it, I did a tasting at the Triangle Wine Experience in, in North Carolina with yeah. some people up there. But I
0: mean, a lot of people, lot of 07 is a really big year. You think it's yeah. been a little overhyped, though? I mean,
3: I think it was a really, really, really great year, but I think it's... You know, sometimes when people hype a vintage, there's this assumption that all the wines from that vintage are going to be great. And right. Not That's the case. Not the case, yeah. Or
0: when someone pans a vintage, you know, a lot of people pan '11. Oh my God, there's and '11 so here was incredible. incredible wines. Yeah. I opened, great point.
3: I opened a 2011 Saxon uh, Broken Stones for my team a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, you guys. And I think that their, their natural assumption was like, oh, 11, 11, 11, whatever, whatever. And we opened this one, I was like, holy crap, this wine's amazing. I'm like, because yeah. 11s were amazing. Yeah, from the good. But it was another one of those years where, so this is the thing with vintage. Like, in a vintage like 18 or 17, there's, a, there's an expectation that there will be more great wines on the market than poor wines. Mm-hmm. In a vintage like 11, the expectation is there will be more poor wines on the market than great wines. But at the end of the day, when you seek out the great producers, that, it, that doesn't,
2: rule doesn't necessarily apply. It's um, just consistency and quality, yeah. right? I think that's what defines a great producer. And, and you know, if you're a great winemaker or not, you got to find a way to make something special and to make something beautiful that expresses that vintage, right? Yeah. It's going to be different every single year, but you should see a vein, right? Like, I mean, if you have, we're drinking now what the Trespasser, right? Yeah. So that is Petit Syrah, Moved, and Syrah. Yeah, You know, I would expect that if you taste that wine over five or six years, all those vintages, you see a family trait. There's no identical twins among them. I'm certain of that. But you can see the lineage. You can see the fact that they're all related. But the expression of the differences in those wines, all of them being beautiful in their own right, is the expression of a difference in the vintage itself. a great great way to put it. it. Talk about the second wine, Aaron. (laughs) So second wine is Trespasser.
3: And um, and Trespasser is is, um, a little bit like pretty good contrast to Sand and Stone. So Sand and Stone with the Grenache heavy focus and that's a 19. I mean the 19s are again really really tight wines at this point. I mean they're pretty intense but typically Sand and Stone is a vintage maybe other than 19 And, and it still has this character but like definitely more open. So like you know, vibrant, a lot, of, a lot of like really ripe red fruits mixed with the black fruits of Petit Syrah. And then Trespasser is a little bit more of a contrast to that. So Trespasser is based around uh, the Petit Syrahs that we get from a little bit of our cooler vineyards. So we have vineyards generally in the Templeton Gap and some of the Willow Creek areas that aren't too high in elevation. So those are the vineyards that are generally later ripening for us. pHs tend to be a little bit higher. They tend to carry a little bit more of a savory, spicy profile. And then we pair that with more Morvedra that we get from Willow Creek, but we do the more Morvedra our is are really savory, varietal in general. We ferment mm-hmm. it with fifty percent whole clusters, so we kind of add a little bit more of that feral, savory character to it. And always add in some of our spiciest, most savory Syrah. And then we actually push on this wine something that we call reduction. So we actually look for a little bit more of a, a reductive profile. So when you push your reduction is the opposite of oxidation. So when you age the wine, we generally age it in larger vessels. You know, but the wine that's definitely a little bit um, deeper and darker, a little bit more cerebral, and a little bit more savory than you would in other wines. And that's just to really bring out like a spicy, savory element in the wine. And so that's something that we definitely try to push on Trespasser because personally, I just think it's fun. And then more Vedra and Syrah as varietals that make up a large proportion of this blend tend to want to go that direction anyway. They want to be a little bit more reductive. And then our cooler climate Syrahs, and I say cool as not, they're not really cool climate, but they're the cooler end of Paso, also tend to want to go in that little bit more you know, tarry, with black pepper, you know, savory kind of meaty profile. And so you end up with a wine that there's never a shortage of fruit in Paso Robles wines across the board. So like we have that in spades. So it's really trying to bring out a little bit more of a kind of more feral, spicy, savory profile on the wine to just some complexity.
0: How can somebody who's tasting a wine dial in reductiveness? Is it, can you sometimes mistake it for wood? Is it kind of like that match, struck match thing or? I'm going to, I'm going to let, it just for, for the f- the sake of
3: fun, I'm going to let Phil run with that one. Yeah.
2: So reductive, I feel like, all right, well, when it comes to a wine, the nice thing about reductive is you can fix reductive. All it needs is a decanter and a little mm-hmm. bit of air. Mm-hmm. Oxidative? There's no going back from that. Um, so reductive wines tend to be pretty closed off; um, they're very tight. And then you really see them kind of blossom with the longer amount of time they spend in the glass or in a decanter, and really start to kind of open up. So reductive wines, in my opinion, I think all the wines that we make at Law we make in a very reductive style because we're trying to preserve all of that fruit and all of the those complexities and those characteristics, and really create a wine that's very age worthy. That then will, you know, age gracefully for a long time and maybe take a little bit of time to open up. I mean, these wines I actually opened up in the morning when I got to the winery, which is a bit too late, so they're probably still pretty tight. Mm -hmm. Um, The wines that we pour in the tasting room, we usually open the night before so that they do have a little bit of oxygen and that reductive character, that kind of really tight, closed, wound up character, it starts to kind of open up and and kind of show itself a little bit. I think a good way to kind of describe it is if you serve a wine too cold, it locks away a lot of flavors and you don't see a lot of what's actually there. Similar with reduction in a way, if you don't give it the time to open up and you don't give it that exposure right. to oxygen, a lot of what's there is actually still kind of locked away and not as noticeable or perceivable as it can be. So it's, it's similar in that regards, I guess.
3: Yeah, and reduction is, is kind of a fun thing to play with with wine making because it, one of the cool things about making a wine that's a little bit more on the reductive side is that it changes so much throughout an evening. So like right now, as we're all have this wine in our glass, you know, for me smelling it, I get, a lot of kind of road tar. I get a lot of like peppered meat, kind of a, like a meaty kind of beefy so character. a bloody too. character yeah, to it. I really <laughs> like it. Yeah. Which is really a character that you pick up from Morvedra and also just the winemaking style. And so, and even since we've just poured a little bit and, and we're no one can see this because we're doing a radio show, not a not like a Zoom meeting, is that we're all kind of... Swirling like crazy. Swirling <laughs> like crazy. It's quite embarrassing actually as I sit there. It's like a nervous twitch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and we're sitting here and just swirling. Well, it's like, oh, embarrassing
2: is when you're swirling water. I do that all oh the time.
3: My oh my gosh, right? <laughs> I do it with my coffee. Be- I do it more with cocktails because I feel like my cocktails getting watered down. And I'm like, I got to homogenize my cocktail so it tastes right. So swirling. It. At the fair,
0: the cork doors were broadcasting and we had a cocktail made for us in a wine glass <laughs> and it had like a red wine floater. Yeah. So it's just sitting perfectly on top of like this gin thing, which was just, it was great. It's from Crowbar. But then, you know, you just, you put it to your nose and then the next thing you do is you swirl and then that float <laughs> that's and it's gone. Cocktail. Yeah, yeah. And now it's just all mixed yeah. up and stuff. So yeah, it, totally like it's like a, a secondhand crutch in a way oh for sure but as we're sitting here and we're swirling this wine in the
3: glass and um we're, it's opening up and you know every few minutes you go back or every minute or so you go back to it and you're like well it's a different wine than i had a second ago mm-hmm. and you keep going 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 and eventually you know that wine will keep changing throughout an evening and then and, and you think about that we're putting this wine into a, like a hyper oxidative state you know we're swirling giving it a lot of air you think about that wine laying it down in your cellar you know it's going to be typically reductive wines are very 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 slow agers so you're you've you've eliminated oxygen from the wine during the elevage or the aging process. And so when it goes into into a very, frankly, reductive state, which is under a cork in your cellar, the wine's going to age very, very, very slowly, which yeah. is cool. So you're you actually giving yourself some time for the wine to blossom.
0: We're going to get into that last wine All right. uh, from Law.
2: What is this one uh, right here? What's so this one's a spire. It's a, a relatively new wine. We've only been making it since 2016. And this was um, kind of... Um, Little brainchild of mine and and Scott's where we, you know, in 2016 we had a little bit more Syrah than we were kind of expecting. Um, We had a great yield in Syrah. I started noticing that when we were blending it just seemed like we were using too much Syrah everywhere. Beguiling didn't look like itself with too much Syrah. Audacious didn't look like itself with too much Syrah. So I came up with the idea of like, well, why don't we make a wine that is the opposite to beguiling? So beguiling is roughly 85% Grenache, 15% Syrah. We ended up making about 450 cases of this wine, blended it out. Really loved it. It's 85 Syrah and 15 uh, Grenache. This vintage in particular is actually 84 16. It's never you know spot on. It depends on what Mother Nature gives us. But you know the critics really love the wine. Our consumers really love the wines. All of our friends and family, everybody really liked the wine. So we you know, continue to make it and we make it to this day. And it's it's just a really fun wine. It's a great expression of Syrah from the property. I think Syrah is really well suited to our, our terroir and our environment, as long as you can protect it from the heat a little bit, I guess. Um, and What's um, the big deal, like sunburn or? Sunburn and trivel. And I think Syrah is one of those varieties, well, especially for me up at Law, where, you know, the perfect time to pick it. I mean, the difference between this is perfect and this is way too late can be like, eight hours. Wow. You know what I mean? Like I can go into a vineyard and be like, all right, well, you know, it's roughly five to 10% dimpled. The flavors are great. Everything looks um, nice. It's got great balance. If you pull the trigger and it's perfect, that's fine. If you have a hot day, the following day or a hot night, change the game it, it, it can you know you can come back a day later and it's 40 percent dimpled wow and, and it's a completely different beast so Syrah is a variety for me that at law i have to be really careful with and really you know i i, I feel that.
0: like we always hear how resilient it is and how
3: but
2: this maybe it in the vineyard is, but, there's some but when it's close to ripe and when it's close mm-hmm. to perfect like just a day can make a really big and especially difference Syrah.
3: And again we talked about the 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 intricacies of like individual terroirs like it's intense at law. I mean, it is mm-hmm. exposed. It is high elevation. It is limestoney. It is steep. I mean, it, it, it's 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 the equivalent of like okay, the the vines are already probably running a marathon to start with, oh, yes. just because of the intensity of it. And then like you know, you're talking about being, you know, a mile from the finish line, and like oh by the way, it's uh, we're going to raise the temperature thirty degrees for your last mile. Good luck, you know. Right. And you're already like. Jesus Christ! Like just slogging it out the whole time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to, like, as a winemaker, it's your job to know that about your towa and know how to, like, adapt and change and and do the best you can to 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 know that that your vines are, you know, we've been pushing them pretty hard all year, like they're tired. Like, you know, don't you know we we just sit there with our fingers crossed at the end of the season, going like, please don't let it be like. Damn Labor Day heat spell, <laughs> right, it's right, always oh, sure. during the Whale Rock Music Festival, which is always is the worst, you know, uh, like right there, you know, it's
0: like Africa hot, you yeah. know, like right
2: in the beginning of September, and, oh yeah. yeah, you know, you're out yeah. right there, so yeah, and I mean, Syrah is, is a variety that definitely comes in pretty early for us, you know, Tempranillo and Syrah are some of the first reds that we pick for sure, and it's a beautiful variety for us, and yeah, it's resilient, and yeah, I mean, it's, anything that can grow here is resilient by definition.
0: Is it still yeah. a tough sell, Syrah? The folks are oh. people wrapping their heads around it, and, you know, I mean, obviously it's it's not like Cab, or, you know, some of the, the more kind of commercial-known... I think you know, Passive is
3: easier to sell, personally. Yeah. yeah. It's opulent. It's got a lot of fruit. I think it's it's different when you go... I mean, I, I'm,
2: maybe... Carignan and Movette are much more difficult, in yeah. my opinion, than yeah. Syrah. Yeah. hmm
0: yeah, But you look at, like, what Stolo's doing with, like, that North Coast Syrah. I mean, it's I mean, a beautiful... Beautiful wine, but...
3: But for consumers, it can be quite polarizing. Mm-hmm. And like I go taste that wine out of barrel every year with Nicole, who and I, her and I went to college together, and she's like one of my favorite people in the whole world. Mm-hmm. Which is great. And we go taste those wines. I'm like, oh my god, this is so good. Mm-hmm. But I can't say in the back of my mind that I'm like, man, this is gonna be a hard
2: wine to sell. Yeah, like, it's it just so different than what you're used to from Paso <sighs> Syrah. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And, you know. and,
3: and, sir, and unfortunately, you know, Syrah is grown all across the world, which is, you know, okay. Let's say Cabernet. So Cabernet, Chardonnay are grown all across the world, but Cabernet and Chardonnay all across the world are much, much more consistent than Syrah. Grown. If you pick up a Syrah from Barossa Valley, pick one up from New Zealand, pick them up from Paso Robles, Sonoma Coast, Chile, they're all going to be so incredibly different. Mm-hmm. Or you know, and then you throw France in there as well. It, it, but that's like the beautiful thing about the varieties and winemaker. We can geek out on it. You know, consumers get quite confused about that. Yeah, I'm like oh, I got this Syrah that I love from Law it was incredible. It's the literally the best wine I've ever tasted in my life. So they think they're gonna go outside Syrah. of buy another Syrah. Yeah. They go pick up a Syrah from somewhere else, from from Friends, from yeah, Chile, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they open up and they're like, "This wine sucks." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it's all lean and yeah. white. Right, totally and, different.
0: Yeah. And um, Phil, you've been here for a few years. What are some of your favorite parts about Paso?
2: I, I really kind of fell in love with Paso right from the beginning. I love, you know. It, I lived in New Zealand for a long time um, and, you know, the population of most of the places I, that I was, was, you know, 50 to 150 and Mm -hmm. 5,000 cheap. So, you know, I was used to small communities and I I really love the size of the town. It's, it's a small town, but it's a big enough town where you've got, you know, great restaurants and you've got all the, the things that you would want from a bigger city but it's packed into the small town vibe. I I love the wines. I I love the community that we have as winemakers. I mean, everybody talks to one another. Everybody knows everyone on a first name basis. It's super relaxed. Um, And, you know, that's something that I really like about it. There's a camaraderie here, you know, like, you know, you can pick up the phone in the middle of Harvest and say like, oh my God, my screen broke on my sorting table. Like, I know you've got the same table. Can I borrow it for an hour? And like, they'll rock up on... With their truck, with you the, always you hear know, that. I it's love that right there, and it, so there's this community vibe to the whole place, and and I love the the environment, you know the the proximity to the ocean and this and it's it's a raw kind of exposed coast. It's got this cool vibe to it, you know. There's good surf, which helps for Aaron and I, you know, <laughs> being surfers. But there's there's lots lots to love about Paso for sure.
0: What do you uh, what's been making you proud about Paso of late? Darren. So as someone that
3: grew up here my whole life, you know, it's funny. I, I grew up in Cayucas, you know, just west of here, 30 minutes. And I, I still live in my hometown where I grew up. And and it's it's funny because as a kid, we never went to Paso for anything. The only thing we came to Paso for was the fair. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I haven't been to the fair in a long time, but I do love a good corn dog. I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. So that's the one thing I always miss about the fair. But for me, you know, one of the, one of the things about Paso was that it's almost like it, it was such the underdog. I never felt like Paso Robles, as when I was young, would become this, frankly, totally world-class wine region. And that was because, obviously, early on, I didn't I didn't, I didn't drink wine. and so, But I got into, into wine really early, and Paso Robles was very much an infant during that time, in the early 2000s. It was kind of going through this, kind of its, you know, really second round, like the old OG, you know, Pezzentis and things like that that were making Zinfandel, the old Italians. But then it was like really going through its first, we're kind of still in this first really I mean, yeah, they kinda of these early on, in the eighties and, and stuff like that, and the John Munches and they're in the seventies and eighties, but you know, this really big burst of growth going on in the late nineties, early two thousands and I got into the business um in nineteen ninety nine working in a vineyard and 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 in a way it was like, nah, like this isn't gonna this isn't gonna be anything. And now I look at us I'm like, holy hell, can you believe it? Like yeah. we are a world class, internationally recognized wine region. Yeah. California and like for someone that's born and raised here like to know that this is in my
0: backyard and doing it our own way yeah
2: it, it,
3: it and in a heart short heart.
2: amount of time yeah I mean it's happened in the last 30 years yeah, yeah. you know what I mean it, no and yeah but and, so
0: much like you said because I moved here in 03 so much just in that time to early aughts yeah. you know oh yeah and, and and
3: then very much to to what Phil says like our community is incredible I mean yeah uh, winemakers have a degree of ego we all do but like when it comes down to it and i think of it like so many of us in this region have each other's back and there is a unpretentiousness about this place it's funny because i think that's something that consumers love about us because we have this it's very real it's very authentic but i don't even know that consumers even realize how much us as winemakers love it because it's something that for us it and it maybe it may resonates for certain people. Not all winemakers crave what we crave, but I think for people like Phil and I, like it feels really real and really authentic, and we feel it feels special. It feels different, you know. You travel, and again, we've two winemakers that have been around the world, and especially the fact that both of us have been in the Southern Hemisphere. That's something mm-hmm. that probably my greatest inspiration about the Southern Hemisphere, being in Australia specifically, is that these are people that are as passionate and serious about their wines and their vineyards of anywhere I've met anywhere in the world but these are people that are unbelievably humble and unbelievably laid back and have a lust for life and they don't take themselves too seriously and i think that Pass robles i shouldn't say embodies that more than any other wine region but i'm i'm tempted to say that maybe Pass robles embodies that more than anywhere else in the world i mean we really i mean i walk the tasting room every single day and i don't judge people i'm like you guys want to like can I come, you guys want to come in the borough and I can teach you about winemaking. making? Like I'm inspired to teach people because, and frankly, it's because I know who we are. I know who I am. And I also know what the rest of the wine industry is like. And it's intimidating for people. And like, I almost feel an obligation as us, as people from Pastor Robles to be like, it's our job to tell people like, Hey,
2: like we're not afraid to let you behind the curtain. Yeah, It's really cool here. There's no secrets here. There's no secret formula that we're trying to hide from everybody. Everybody's just doing their own thing and trying to make the best wines they possibly can. And you're welcome to check it out. And And maybe that's the secret to why we've
0: been so successful. Sure.
3: Ultimately, in a short period
0: of time. The people have definitely a huge piece
3: of that pie to do with it. Would we have gotten here without that camaraderie, without that, like, there is no, you know, curtain behind. that You can't get behind, you know, and then we've all worked together at that. And so it, it truly is a community effort.
2: And I think it's the fact that we make ourselves available to to people, you know what I mean? Like so many places, you know, working at law, like I walk into the tasting room, I'll host a couple of tastings here and there and, and people love it. My boots are dirty. I'm, you know, straight out of the vineyard. I'm wearing a dirty shirt with dirt on it and a sun hat and, you know, it, they, they realize like, wow, this... This guy's actually... That's the winemaker. He's the winemaker. Yeah, yeah I've mean, right? been there and, there and I see your so. wine, and
0: I see go to Penn City and Aaron's on the forklift or Aaron's busting out this or that. I mean, it's like super... We're fixing broken stuff, which is not... Yeah, right. Super approachable. <laughs> All right, final question. I also produce a a surfing podcast i don't host wow. it but i just produce it it's called midlife surfer and it's hosted by a an old and good friend of mine who lives in santa cruz so i kind of want to ask you both uh, talk about uh, your your quiver talk about what you're you're riding on right now where your favorite spots are to surf and then finally what makes well he doesn't want <laughs> toronto's like I, that's a, that's no no secret question. Question. you don't want no secret spots out <laughs> yeah, there yeah, yeah. and then talk <laughs> about why surfing makes you a better winemaker oh that's yeah that's, that's uh, tough
3: to uh all right i'll start so all right so i i was lucky enough to grow up in cayucas my whole life um my mother is actually from hawaii and so we have obviously like a lot of surfing in our genes and uh, my mother is native hawaiian and, and moved to california and up randomly in cayucas and um and then she met my father, and, and, and she was living in Huntington Beach. My brother's from Long Beach, and my, my father happened to be a surfboard shaper. So they moved up here, and my father has been a surfboard shaper for, well, he's 70 now. So he started shaping, shaping surfboards in his late teens. He's not shaping as much anymore, but my brother has kind of taken the helm of that. And so I grew up in a family surrounded by the ocean, surrounded by people that were shaping. I mean, my my, my earliest childhood memories are covered in in foam dust in the garage my mm-hmm. dad's you know carving out surfboards for people. And, um, and so... Obviously, it's much much more for me than just getting in the ocean and going surfing. It, it is a full lifestyle. It's, it's the whole culture it's, of it. It's a culture of it, yeah. exactly. And so, you know, I, you know, I'm definitely getting older. I'm gonna be 38 this year, so you know, I'm not gonna be honest. I've been a pretty hardcore surfer my whole life, and I'm slowing down a little bit. You know, I actually was just telling these guys when I got here, I've been out of the water for six months with a knee injury that I guess unfortunately uh undertook in december which is one of the best winters we've had in a really really long time and i, I missed know. half of it because i was laid up with a knee injury and had surgery and, and I'm, I'm just getting back in the water now but i mean i have i have a lot of boards in my quiver but i as i've gotten older you know it's funny when you're younger you it's it's there's a little bit more ego in it so it's all like oh i'm only gonna ride these boards i'm only gonna surf these ways and now it's 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 like it's like it's like the old high it's like you're getting rid of this the high school part of you that only wants to do things that you're good at. Now I just wanna surf as much as possible and I wanna have fun all the time. So I've changed up my quiver. I got this incredible five seven twin fin that I ride from a local shaper named Shane Stone, who's a fantastic guy that I've known for a long time. And it's, that board's changed my life. Obviously I obviously have a huge quiver of short boards that I still ride, but I got my first longboard last year. Really, <laughs> and I you know I went to Big nice. Sur last Saturday. I went to Sand Dollar Beach in Big Sur, and I took took my longboard down longboard for three hours. Came on the beach, drank two beers, hung out for two two hours. Went back out, you know, it was. a a little bit buzzed, but <laughs> another <laughs> 30 minute session. And it was like the best I've had in a long time. And so, yeah, the has changed a little bit. And, and as, as a, as a, a, as how surfing is, it's a lifestyle, it's an attitude. It's, it's something that, you know, unlike a lot of other things, it is something that much like winemaking, I got into winemaking feeling like I could I felt like winemaking when I was really young was a career could do for the rest of my life. I feel like it would always challenge me. It would always present me with new opportunities every year. It would prevent me from being bored, such like an accountant that just dreads taxis every year because it's offensively the same crap every year, right? And winemaking really, I felt like, was something that would give me that dynamic career. And surfing is very much the same thing. Yeah. Surfing is, if, if you get bored surfing, something's wrong in your head because it's never living the same thing every day. It's always giving you something unique, and it challenges you every day in different ways. And sometimes it's it's up to you to seek the challenge. Um, and so, again, again, not being dogmatic about what your you ride or being dogmatic about you know what kind of wine you're seeking to make, or not being aware of the different vintage. And so, it's been a really great, really. I think they are quite compatible. Um, and so, in that regard, um, I think that there's a lot of relatable elements to it.
0: Yeah, I love that. And notice Toronto, he didn't name any spots. No. So, Toronto's I, I, happy. I'm going to take the, the fifth same. on that
2: one. I'm just going to go. There, there. you go. Play
0: the go like, ahead, <laughs> Phil. <clears throat> what I will
2: say is there are some gems around here for sure. Whether or not you can find them, that's up to you. you have yeah. to go search.
3: Um, I hope you expected these answers when you started this, Adam, when you started this yeah. podcast. Like, I'm going to ask the question where their favorite spots are. You should have been like, probably will not answer.
0: <laughs> well, that's why I kind of package it into the quiver, what you guys ride yeah. on. And then, of course, really, you know how it makes. Sense how surfing makes you a better winemaker yeah
2: well as far as quivers i'm a little bit older than you i'm, I'm 41 now um but i'm still kind of hanging on to this you know a lot of my friends make fun of me because they look at my quiver and i've got all my boards in the garage and and, and they're like they're all the same and i'm like you're crazy mate they're not all the same they're <laughs> ranging between five six and six four and i mean that's a relatively small gap but um you know i I I do love my short boards. I'm starting to get more into, um, you know, a little bit more alternative craft, I guess. But I feel like I'm at a stage in my life where I'm still hanging on to this you know, I, I'm in good enough shape and there's a very limited amount of time I've got left on high-performance shortboards before I move into, you know, like, you know, mid-lengths and, you know, Wait, twin What Chris is writing. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's, he's
3: 40, he's,
2: he's, look, he's got his thumbs going this
0: way oh, yeah. right here.
3: You
2: yeah.
0: guys are lucky he's not mic'd up. Yeah.
2: <laughs> So, so I still write a lot of the kind of short boards and high performance short boards, but they vary. And some of my favorite boards are kind of, um, I, the last boards I got were a couple of Pizels and the Phantom and it, it's just a really fun board, but you know, little fishes and, and, and kind of short boards like that are, are super fun. And, you know, it's not long before I get my, my mid length. I do have a long board at home. My buddy gave it to me, you know, and I've used it like twice I think um, oh, yeah. but it, you know on the right day it's that's all you need and it's super fun you know and and a lot of the waves around here actually cater to longboarding you know like small days at the rock I mean mm-hmm. you can get 400 yard lefts that just cruise along you try to Pump around on that on a shortboard, and you just you're just not having as much fun.
3: Well, Phil so. and I don't are, luckily don't haven't quite got the dad bod going yet, so we're no. we're, we're trying to milk. You know, it keeps us in shape for harvest. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, totally. A surf, a
2: surfing fitness does actually has its advantages in a lot of ways. For sure, yeah, <laughs> it keeps you fit. It keeps you young. You know, you try to get out in the water as much as you can. But you know, as as far as winemaking, I think what what surfing really teaches you uh, what I've mentioned before is it, it it forces you to live in the now you know you take off on a wave you don't know exactly what it's going to do you could be at the most mechanical reef pass in the world every wave is still going to be slightly different the change of angle the change of wind all of those things play into it and then you you have this blank canvas that you then have to kind of perform on and and winemaking is very similar i think you you get this blank canvas as far as a vintage and all those little decisions and how you decide to react to the environment is is what shapes how the wines end up being. So there's a lot of similarity between surfing and winemaking for sure. And I think one helps the other, um, except for during harvest when it's pumping and you can't go because you're getting 12 tons of Syrah.
3: I'm really tired of people texting me during harvest and saying, where are you? Yeah, like, you it's know, pumping. I've been a winemaker. For over twenty years, you know where I am. Yeah, stop telling me that the waves are good. (laughs) My buddy Russell,
2: (laughs) he asks me every year, "Hey, mate, can you go on a surf trip in September? We're going down to Nicaragua." I'm like, "No, I've been doing this for a long time. time? Like, don't ask
0: me. Like, don't even talk to me about it. Don't even bring it up." Lawstatewines.com, I think it's the website for you guys, right? Uh, Lost so can't yeah. And obviously, you guys are on Pichu Canyon Road. Yep. It's in a magnificent facility. Uh, if you ever get a chance to, to get there, just a tasting room will blow your mind. Uh, certainly, if you know someone who knows someone, you can get a tour. If you ever get a chance to meet Phil, uh, it's been really a pleasure to get a chance to yeah, know you and too. meet you. I gotta come back It's been, it's been a few years since I've been there. So I'd love to come by, say hi to Oliver and see you, uh, yeah, in the, in the cellar. Aaron Wines. Tin City, which is, uh, I mean, it's got such a culture and an attitude in and of itself, and, and you are certainly part of that, because that little area, that little cul-de-sac with you and Wineshine and, and Guillaume and Valia, I mean, it's just like, it's it's one of a kind attitude and character It's the there. Cool Kids Club, for it sure. It certainly is. <laughs> it certainly is. We so, have a lot of fun. Aaronwines.com, right? Yeah. And absolutely. then, uh, we guys, obviously, by appointment, we've kind of decided by appointment, it's kind of like the way to do things. Even yeah. coming out of 2020, you still taking walk-ups a little bit? Come on, by we'll figure fit you in we'll fit you in all right <laughs> <work>. <laughs> well you guys have fun doing this yeah, yeah for sure i know you're gonna be globetrotters you're like out to panama like tomorrow and I'm, just I'm, fit this I'm, in I, and this, hey i gotta get back to work i know you I keep got, looking got, at I'm, your phone i know i'm getting a lot of checks for
3: three weeks Mike, my, my Cruz, like i jealous can you, oh, we have a lot of questions can you please get back to wine? i'm like sorry guys i
0: just you know uh, four I'm, just four bottles on this table Every one of them just, like, blow your mind. Awesome, beautiful wines. Uh, thank you so much for the time, gentlemen, and for hanging out and for sharing where wine takes you. Cheers, cheers. Great to see you all. Yeah, yeah. you too. Best
3: part of being a you know, winemaker. Yeah, I'm drinking wine. Yeah, right, and so enjoying
2: it cool. with people that enjoy other wines. Yeah,
1: right? Yeah. So give me that mm-hmm sound, We'll get by. We we'll till the job is up, and out in the trees. will simplify company
0: Uh, thank you so much to Philip and Aaron of both Law and Aaron Wines, respectively, for their time, for the chat. Had a lot of fun with those guys. All right. So now for our Travel Paso Spotlight. Today, I want to tell you about a new and cool spot I found called The Stables. The Stables Inn. Now, once a motel from the 50s, it has been given new life, breathed into it by the incredible folks who own Hotel Cheval downtown by the park in Paso. The Stables Inn it's right on Spring Street as you're coming into town inspired by really the timeless charm of horses, horse riding, traditional whitewashed stables. The vibe is so cool. It's like this mid-century modern, classy vibe, but then you add in and thread in this Old West chic with all the hospitality and luxury you know if you've been lucky enough to stay or chill at the Hotel Cheval. Now, I'm a believer in the boutique motel. You've seen this a few years ago on the Central Coast. I think of the Skyview in Los Alamos, but this is a cool model. The Stables Inn adopts this unpretentious stay with all the style and amenities you really want, really need. It's cool to have something of this vibe here and done by the same people, you know, who know Paso. I mean, Hotel Cheval is incredible. So you got to check them out. Let them know you heard it here on the podcast. Get in with this new and really cool spot in Paso. Check out stablesinpaso.com. And you can always check out TravelPasso.com for more, as well as a link to them on our website, PassoWine.com. Wow, fun times today. Great chatting with Phil from Lost State Wines and Aaron from Aaron Wines. Original music here on Where Wine Takes You. From our friends at Moonshine Collective, the song is called Good Company. Make sure you visit PasoWine.com for any and all things Passo before your next trip and follow Paso Wine on Instagram at Paso Wine. You can always follow me. At Adam on the Air. I'm always shooting behind the scenes stuff, letting you know what's coming up next. Where Wine Takes You is executive produced by Joel Peterson and Paso Wine. Associate producer is Jim Bravo. Where Wine Takes You, recorded, edited, and produced by yours truly. And the next time you're cruising along the central coast, you can tune in to my morning show, Up and Adam in the morning, weekday mornings on Coast 104.5, and Wine Country Radio, the Cork Dorks, and more. Check out the Crush 925. And you can stream it at crush925.com. Well, cheers. Thanks for hanging out. I'm your host, Adam Montiel. Until next time, pour some Paso wine, lift that glass up, and cheers and enjoy where wine takes you.
1: And give me that moon we'll get by, we we'll pass on till the job is. Camp rep- out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Give me that moon we'll get by, we we'll pass on till the job is. Camp rep- fact- so, out in the trees, it will simplify good, good company. Give fury- tom- me that moon we'll get by, we we'll pass on round till the job is. Camp out in the trees, it will simplify good company. Give me that moon will get if by we pass all around till the job is dry can't out in the trees who will simplify in good, good company, company.